0: This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 193, and the quote of the day is from Sarah Dresden, who said, Music is the great uniter, an incredible force, something that people who differ on everything and anything else can have in common listening to the drummers resource podcast home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers music industry professionals and thought leaders inspiration education and motivation for drumming and beyond and beyond and beyond What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource podcast. And if this is your first time listening, you can catch all 193 episodes at drummersresource.com or the latest 50 or so on iTunes, Stitcher, and all that stuff. Also, quick note, Uh, Once again, Drummer's Resource has been nominated for a 2016 Drummy Award, which is amazing. It's the Reader's Choice Award for Drum Magazine. And I would really, really, I really, really want to win this award. Uh, Last year, we were the runner up. And this year, it would mean the world to me if we could win this award. So what do I need from you? I need you to just please go to drummersresource.com forward slash vote. Vote and you can vote as many times as you would like. But if you're getting any value out of this podcast, uh, it's 100 percent free for you. So do me a favor. I'm guilting you into this. Please go vote for Drummers Resource under General Interest website. Please do that for me. And uh, again, it's DrummersResource.com forward slash vote. Also, I'm doing an inter or a webinar. Uh, How to Get Bigger and Better Gigs, and that is this Tuesday. So if you want to check that out, you can go to drummersresource.com forward slash gigs. I'll teach you how to get bigger and better gigs, who gets hired and why, and a bunch of other things of how you can step up your game and get the gigs that you deserve. So let's get into the interview today. The interview is with David Ivory, and David is a Grammy-nominated producer. He's a Philadelphia native. As you know, I'm from outside the Philadelphia area, and I've heard David's name for years. He's worked with a slew of different people. Uh, one of the things that we talk about, especially, is him working with The Roots and with Quest Love, uh, specifically because, obviously, Quest is a drummer, but uh, just great to have David on the, on the podcast because, again, I've heard his name for years, and it was amazing to actually finally get to talk to him him and and uh, have a conversation so there's a lot of stuff in here he talks about what he looks for in a drummer all sorts of cool amazing stories about a studio that he built that I recorded at after he had owned it and, and everything so a really great interview so I hope you all enjoy it with the one and only David Ivory David, how are you? Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. No problem. How are you, Nick? Uh, I'm doing well. It's great to have you because, you know, as I mentioned, I'm a I'm a Philly guy, and I have uh, I've heard your name rumoring around the uh, the music scene ever since I can remember. So it's a pleasure to actually have you on the show and be able to talk to you. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Hey, quick question. Did you your first studio? Uh, where was your first studio located? It was in Royersford, Pennsylvania. I thought so. A dome sound, right?
1: Yeah, it was a geodesic dome. Yep. I, I built that when I was uh, around 24 years old.
0: Right? Amazing.
1: Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Oh, you, I, so
0: you've been there, huh? I've I've recorded there. Uh, I've recorded a few records there, and my buddy is in the Bloodhound Gang, and they recorded all their records there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Rich, who who I guess bought it off of you. Uh yep. I know. So yeah, and I thought you were. I thought you owned that, and. Uh, I I wasn't 100% sure but I was about 95% sure so Yeah
1: I start I built it in 82 and I was there up until 90 and then and then I sold it to Rich and then uh, I moved to Sigma and then I was an independent producer at Sigma throughout all the 90s and then the end of 2000 Sigma was being sold so I got a, my spot where I'm at right now in Gwinnett Valley
0: I got you. So the the for the people who're listening this it's called Dome Sound now, and what, what was it called when you had it? Uh, iris, iris, iris. Yeah. So it's the inside of the studio is a, it's a it's a dome. It's a it's right. uh the best way that I can describe it. It's probably the craziest recording studio I, I've ever been in, but it's amazing. The sound is good and everything. Was there a reason why you designed it that way?
1: Yeah. Um. Basically, it was a f- uh, fifty by fifty empty warehouse, and the concept was you know you're always worried about parallel walls and ceilings and all this stuff so Mm -hmm. my concept was to eliminate all that so and the only really way to do that is to have a dome so just so the listeners understand it really isn't a full dome it was a five-eighths dome so it's a little more than half a dome so if you cut a basketball in half and then quarter it that's the that's kind of what the dome was inside now that went up against then also what I wanted to do is make it a a nice venue for live performances so we added uh, sort of like a Frank Lloyd Wright design cantilevered balcony that sticked out six out over the over the 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 floor area and you can kind of look down on the performance and so that's what the balcony was all about.
0: That's sort of, now that you say that, I get, yeah, because it butts up against sort of the front of the top of the control room. Right, it ha- and it hangs
1: right. over the control room, so it's cantilevered from, there's two steel beams that were inside there that we that we took uh, struts out and then, like, kind of used one to hold the other, and that's how we got away from the wall without
0: having any supports. So did you design this whole thing yourself? Yeah, uh-huh,
1: and the dome was designed by this friend of mine, um, uh, 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 rex Reichert, who was a um like a math wizard and, <laughs> and he was the one i got involved to help me design the dome and what we did was we didn't well, have that, a lot well,
0: that's what i was gonna ask like how the hell did you do this when you were 24 years old
1: well because um i was into building stuff um i actually was working for uh, I was working part time, so I was playing full time. But I was working part time for this uh, for this guy who was like a builder, uh, welder kind of guy. So he he kind of helped me with. Uh, I kind of just got a lot of people involved. He kind of helped me with like the. If you notice, if you go up to the stairs, there's like these compression stairs. So mm-hmm. it's sort of like an M.C. Escher kind of vibe. So I kind of wanted to. to to put you know Buckminster Fuller, Frank Lloyd Wright, and Escher all together all in the same kind of building because it was something that they were all, like I was fans of all that work right. of those people. So like I had him design the stairwell because the stairway that goes up to the second floor, if you notice, there's, again, no supports. And it goes one way, then it turns another. And if you look at it in a weird way, it's like an Escher drawing. You don't know if it's going up or down. So, right. so I used him to do that, and he helped me with that. Um, I designed the actual layout because of, um, you know, that was sort of my expertise. And then, of course, uh, I wanted a living quarter there and a shower and stuff because sometimes, you know, I anticipated people being there for many days at a time. Mm
0: -hmm. So, yeah, there's a whole kitchen in there. Right. uh, Yeah.
1: Yeah, So it was pretty cool. And and then I got uh, Rex to do the uh, dome. And what he did, we had a lot of free help, we just didn't have a lot of money. So um, the dome was also good that way because just the nature of the structure, you don't need like two by fours and two by sixes like your classic building structure. Uh, you, we've used literally plaster lath, which is very cheap and easy to do. And so what Rex did was, was brilliant. He built, believe it or not, and I have a picture of it, a Tinker Toy model of the dome. Really? And, Yeah, and because the nature of the dome, there's really only um, six different sizes, six different lengths of wood that we needed to make this dome. So basically what he did was he did a color-coded model that he put on the floor of exactly what the dome would look like when it was built. So he had – and he he color-coded the the lengths. So we had blue – orange red so on and so forth so when people would come over we could just put them in front of something and say here make 60 of these and paint them put a put a blue line on them and then that way rex then would be able to with him and i would at the at night would go and construct it with the parts that some of the, my friends made during the day so it was very it was wild man it it's was amazing like, it was amazing. It was crazy how we put it together. And then, you know, we ran into some problems because we had to, uh, you know, we had to code it because now you just have this wood structure that's all in hexagonal forms. And, you know, you got to put a, you know, you got to put something on it. So I found this company in Texas that we're just starting to do this blow on insulation, which is uh, not insulation. It's really a paper fiber Mm -hmm. and it's, you know, safe and all that stuff. And, you know, um real green and all that so what we did was we put literally chicken wire over the outside of the dome and then we put foil on the outside of that so that enabled then the guys to spray it to come in and spray into it and the chicken wire held it in place and that's why it looks like it has that and and that's why it has that shape huh and that that texture right to, to the wall you well know yeah it. i
0: know that it has like it looks like uh yeah, it's a. It looked. It's
1: like a mache almost. What's that? It's almost like paper mache. Right, 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 right. Because it was blown on paper. To be honest with you, it's glue, water, and paper. Mm-hmm. And um, so once that dried, then it gave us this beautiful thing. And the uh, other beauty of it was because it was all wrapped in chicken wire, it isolated it through for any kind of uh, uh, which which was an un which was a, a consequence that we didn't anticipate, but it was a good one because we were able to isolate a lot of RF frequency noises uh, from the outside because it was literally, we were inside of a metal shield. Hmm.
0: Huh.
1: So, so there was a lot of work. It took us about eight months to do the whole thing. Um, it was an old flag factory. And the the only reason we really went there is because half of the floor was this cherry floor, this cherry wood floor and that's you know
0: right. you can't ask
1: for more than that for a studio a nice hardwood floor. So, so. do you
0: have pictures of, of this that you could yeah. send me that we could cuz I I there's show notes for every podcast. I would love to put some pictures up of this to to let everybody know that we're talking about so there's more of a visual representation of all the sure, stuff. Sure, sure. I have a couple
1: of photos I could scan for you. Sure. Yeah,
0: it's an amazing uh it's an amazing building. So let's let's talk a little bit about sort of how you got into into producing in the first place.
1: Well, right out of high school, well I, I started playing guitar at four, at 12 and I started playing gigs at 14. Mm-hmm. So I was literally in bar rooms at 14 years old playing 10 to two in the morning, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, right out of high school, I went on the road and back then, uh, early eighties, I mean, gas stations had bands. I mean, you know, it was like, right. it was right before the DJ boom kind of hit. So like there was two bands at a holiday Inn. there was three band. like there was just amazing amount of work because there wasn't any kind of way like it is now with DJs or that kind of, you really had to have a band if you wanted music. So, uh, so right out of that, I went on the road and was like a holiday in kind of band and we did really well and played a lot. And then, you know, uh, making some money doing right out of high school was pretty cool. And then I kind of had the bright idea that I could write music. (laughs) So, um, I started doing that and then I'm thinking, wow, this is great. So then I figured, well, you know, let's, let's go record. And then we went to record and it was not really a good experience. The, the, the place we went was pretty bad and it was like, and I'm watching him do this and I'm thinking like, man, I think I can do all this probably better than these guys. And that's kind of what started me thinking about recording.
0: Hmm.
1: And then, um, so this is like, so about three years out of high school or four years, I had a, 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 I got into an original band, of course, stopped making all that money that I was making playing covers. Yep. And uh, <laughs> and I, I didn't quite figure that one out. Um, and then uh, we moved into this big band house and in the basement was this great basement. So I started buying equipment. It was just that simple. Unfortunately, back then, I mean, a four track tape deck was $1,000. Right. So, you know, it, it was way harder to get into recording than it is now. Obviously.
0: Well, I, re- I remember Rich who bought Dome off you referencing, a, a, you know, buying a, a a one gig external hard drive and it was like $2,800. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. One gig. That's insane.
1: Right. right. Insane. Because uh, I had in the 80s, I was one of the first to have Mac and sequencers through MIDI hooked up via Sync. Uh, a sync track on tape machines, and I remember i bought my s e thirty which was uh one one meg one meg uh let's say five five twelve meg of ram and a printer and it was seven
0: thousand dollars <laughs> Yeah. So, it's amazing.
1: Right, it's amazing. It, it, like and so obviously there weren't a lot of studios out there. So if you could get into the studio business, you were in luck. So so when I started my my basement of my band house, I started getting some clients and then that's when um I was I found this building to build the dome in and that's when we started actually I figured out I, I made a career of it. So then I started playing less and then recording more. And then the more I recorded my you know by because of the virtue of playing and knowing music, it kind of helped me start producing. So Well kinda, that's
0: what, that's what I was going to ask. I'm guessing at some point you have to say okay, I'm I either like I either enjoy, you know, uh engineering recording and producing more or I just I can't do both. I can't play five nights a week and do all of this stuff too. No,
1: no, you couldn't. And, and you, because you would do neither of them well. Right. So that was the problem. So I just, yeah, I just went into it full blown. I still played a lot, but nothing like I was before. And then I just kind of shifted it more to, you know, learning keyboards and learning MIDI programming. I, I learned, you know, cause MIDI just came out like in 1983, 84. So so, because um, we were using CV gate control voltage stuff mm-hmm. to trigger, so you would have a drum machine, and I don't know how technical you want me to get, but you have a, a drum machine, and like say you make a hi hat pattern that 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 something like that, and then you could send that pattern out of a control voltage, and if you had a a a, a sequencer like a Pro One Sequential Circuits Pro One on an arpeggiation, just arpeggiating randomly that hi-hat would then open up that cv voltage and that note would come out and then close again so essentially you could create uh, arpeggiation and, and that kind of stuff via a hi-hat uh, electronic send. Huh. so it was quite complicated and you know but we were able to do it a lot and then when midi came and we were able to actually edit and do all that stuff you know the everything went nuts right you know, right. and then and then I was fortunate enough to get what was called an emulator too, and an emulator was one of the first keyboards that you could actually sample into. So it was the very first time you could take your voice, sample it into the keyboard, and then extrapolate it across the entire keyboard with different pitches, and then put attack, decay, sustain, release, all that stuff on your sample. Now. That seems like no big deal now. But.
0: Right. That, that's like the $20 Casio keyboards had yeah. that after a while.
1: Right. But I'm telling you, in 1983, it was like, you know, God came down and was showing <laughs> me what to do. It was like crazy. So it was like it's absolutely unbelievable. So, you know, and of course, that keyboard cost $8,600. Right. So, I mean, it was just like nuts. It's and insane. I. I, and I didn't have a lot of money, so we just—I just kept putting all my money into gear because you pretty much had to back then because right. you know it was it was a gear kind of driven kind of industry. You know?
0: Well, and that was always the thing. It was like where you know where do you want to record? And it's like all right, well, what gear do they have? Right. What's there? Right. And you know, I'm I'm guessing, and I don't know the ins and outs of it, obviously, like you do, but I'm guessing that certain bands wouldn't record at certain places because they didn't have certain you know gear uh, that they were looking for.
1: Absolutely correct. It was yeah. way more gear centric than it is now because now every everybody has the same gear. Right. And it's, it's
0: commoditized a bit.
1: Yes, exactly. So yeah. it wasn't. And that's why it's a lot of things start sounding the same because everybody's using the same stuff. So if, if everybody, if a, a million people buy wave plugins, you're going to end up probably using the same ones. And guess what? Things are going to start sounding the same. Sure. So that's a, that's the negative byproduct of having it very easy. You know, mm-hmm. yes, the internet and technology afforded everybody to do more music, but now everybody is. So, right. so with the same tools. So it's, you know, it's important to, yeah. You know, just one of those things.
0: Well, and I, I remember even when, just when pro tools came out and like buying all the plugins for pro tools were still, right. it, it, there were still barriers to entry because it was 10, 12 grand. Right. To buy all the, all the plugins. And now, you know, it's right.
1: And it's Sigma. We through the nineties, I know when rich bought the place, he was really heavily into the pro tools thing. Uh, I actually, uh, I was at that point, I didn't like pro tools cause it sounded like crap. Mm-hmm. And you know, after buying a, you know, a $40,000 22-inch machine, you're not well willing to make now start making music. It doesn't sound as good as that, you sure. know, especially with that investment. So at Sigma, I, I had my room there, and we stayed analog, and that's when I did all the Roots records and all that stuff, and that was all analog stuff until 2000, when Pro Tools really started sounding really good, you know.
0: So my question is, if you record, say you record, you know, like you recorded Things Fall Apart, and you recorded that analog, but then it, it gets converted to digital.
1: Only at the very end. Uh, that was even mixed uh, off a of two-inch of two tape. So it was even mixed. And the only time it went to digital, those records were when they were actually uh, m- uh, made to be manufactured for CD. That was the first time they hit digital. So does, does the sound
0: degradate every single time? No, no. No, and- or I guess let me rephrase my question, and this is me partly being, uh, partly just being naive, I guess. But if I record, so my record that I recorded, I recorded on two inch tape, uh, like a couple years ago, and then we just converted it to digital for for the CDs, the same thing that you're talking about. So if I recorded it in Pro Tools and then put it on CD, or recorded on analog and put it on CD, am I going to get the sound same sound quality because it's digital at the end?
1: Uh, well, no, only because the two inch tape is going to sound a whole lot different than your pro tool session. So your analog session is going to sound uh, wider, darker, more bass, smoother highs, uh, than your pro tool session would. Now, will you be able to discern that? Probably not. Unless I played them simultaneously and you were able to switch back between them,
0: mm-hmm. then you
1: would hear a dramatic difference. I got you. It's interesting because I have my two inch machine here, and sometimes I make transfers. And when my interns are here and stuff, as I'm making the transfer, you can hit, it, you can go back and forth between the two, while it's happening, right? Mm-hmm. So you can hear the the tape, and then you can hear the Pro Tools, and it's it's pretty dramatic, right? But you would have to have it AB to really know that, you know? Sure.
0: What I mean? so. Sure. So, what's your take now on on sort of how we talked about everything being commoditized and everybody having access to all this equipment and you know, the, the need to go into bigger studios and things like that are, are sort of falling by the wayside of people are recording in their bedrooms?
1: Um, you know, I, it's hard, you know, it's hard to say
0: that it's hard
1: to have a comment on that because there's so many different scenarios, you know, mm-hmm. like, like, you know, if you can't afford to do this, does that mean you don't make music? No. Um, but if you make music and you're trying to go for something special, you know, then maybe you do try tape or you try a tube mic or something like that. You know what I mean? So, like, uh, 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 it's, it's, it's weird. I'm just not really – like, it. they're all different. The beauty of it is, though, for the most part, they're all available. Yes, the tape is much harder to to get or deal with. But you know, it, it can be done. Um, it's hard to say. I think it's it, it's all relative to me. I think that makes sense. That's it, a, I, that's I.
0: I agree with that answer.
1: Yeah, I don't really have because it it isn't. It's weird. And it, and some people go like you know like I I just built um, a, a little eight track studio out in this little cabin I have out in, in on my property and. I swear, it sounds like Muscle Shoals Studio. It's like, so I had this 65 two-track that I mixed to, 1965 Ampex two-track I mixed to. It's like crazy. It's like he's just, there's no plug-in on earth that can make that sound. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, and I just released a record, uh, this band Stolen Roads, and we did two songs in the cabin. And, you know, we did the rest of the record on full-blown Pro Tools production. But there's such a beautiful little character to those couple songs that were done in the cabin that are just special and you can really hear it on the record. And it gives you another perspective of the band in that setting as opposed, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. it's not mm-hmm. like it's better or worse. It's just another trip within right. that record.
0: Sure. Sure. So let's talk about some, some drum specific things as, okay. as maybe as a drummer, either that's uh well, it's kind of a two part question. One, what do you as a producer look for in a drummer if you're going to be hiring someone for uh you know for just for studio work as a as a hired gun? First and
1: foremost, a great attitude. Second, the ability to really play with a click. Because um so often I hear people go like, "Oh yeah, I can play to a click." Okay so when was the last time you did that Oh, i did like six months ago i played to a click then you instantly know that they don't really know how to play to a click because playing to a click is a very important thing for a session player now if you now having said that if you're in a jam band and you're touring around there's no need to play to a click that's might not even be your trip but i'd say 90 percent 95 percent of the things i track need to be with a click and when Mm -hmm. i say play to a click when you have good drummers that can really know how to play to a click they can be behind a little bit the click on the verse and push the click a little bit on the chorus and then come back and you'll never even really notice it because if you take a if you if you record a click say to pro tools or logic or something and stretch that that click sound out you will notice that it's not one moment. It's pretty wide.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So there's a lot of space even in that one click where you can lay the beat. And the really really good drummers really can know how to lay into that click where they actually use the click with their a click within the click, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's what I look for the most, how well that, you know, once you get past it, that they're a great attitude and willing to do, you know, what it takes. And then I want their experience to chime in too. I want their comments. I want their, you know, um, uh, I want their perspective while they're in the session. I want to hear, well, what do you think? Well, maybe we should do this and it might be a great idea.
0: You know, mm-hmm. so- you know, one of the exercises that I've done for years is taking a click and And whenever the whenever you hear the tone, use that as the two and four and just playing the snare drum and literally seeing if I can lay on the tone, a little bit behind the tone, a little bit in front of the tone, and then start mixing in the drums and going through that exercise over and over again. And then you can real like you said, you can see you start to feel, okay. Now my scenario is hitting right before the beep. It's hitting right on the right on the beep, or right you know right after the beep. Whether and you're sometimes
1: or... right, and sometimes you need that chorus to push a little bit. Sure, you know, and then but not to be out of time, just mm-hmm. to be a little bit in front of that click. You know, and it's 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 an art form. It really is. And when you hear somebody who's mastered that play. I mean, I've worked with some of the best drummers. I mean, I've worked with Richie Hayward. I worked with Anton Figg. I've worked with, you know, like a whole bunch of amazing drummers. And when you have those drummers in your and in you're intimately recording them, you can really hear what's going on.
0: Right, right. So if people are looking to get into session work and things like that, and I, I would imagine, you know, I'm going to say that, that the session work is not as fruitful as it used to be. Correct. Um, But what is your, I get, I get questions about that all the time. And frankly, uh, you know, I've played in bands for years, but I've just recorded my own records. I've cut a couple different records just from people calling me to hire me, but I've never been a quote unquote session guy. Uh, Do you have any advice for, for people who are trying to network in that scene and really, really try to get into the, the recording scene?
1: Right. Well, if you're starting out, the best thing to do is find a local studio and offer your services for free. And just try to be available at any given moment. Like, and it's best to, you know, you want to try to do your the studios in your in your reach, so you're not like, because the what you really want to be is available. So, like, say uh, uh, you know uh, twelve o'clock at night, uh, this somebody doesn't show up, and I can call you, and you'll yeah, I'll be right over, like because mm-hmm. that's the kind of availability that you need to do and you need to kinda of do a couple for free and not even want money then just to show that you can really do it and then that's the kinda of thing that studio owners producers really like because it shows that you're hungry and you're ready to do this and you're ready to work at any time
0: mm-hmm.
1: because everybody wants to be a studio player or this and that but you know alright let's show up at 10 a.m. and I'm gonna work you for four hours and you know let's see how you play well you know you, you gotta be ready for that that's all mm-hmm. so it's it's like anything else uh, you, to get your foot in the door, you just got to do it for nothing and try to show your, your value. And then one day, you know, they'll call on you, they'll call on you. And then one day if they they start liking you, then you go, Oh man, I can almost make it, but I have this other gig. Can you pay me something? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then that's how you start getting paid.
0: I like that approach.
1: <laughs> yeah. But you have to start getting that desire first. You build up the, you know, the, um, The supply and the demand.
0: Mm -hmm. This session is brought to you by Dream Symbols, and they have an amazing recycling program that can save you some money on symbols. So if you bring in your symbols to any participating dealer, if it's a broken symbol, crack symbol, whatever the case may be. And for every inch of symbol that you bring in, they'll give you a dollar off your symbol. You bring two 20 inch symbols in, they're going to give you 40 bucks off of a new dream symbol or gong. And the best part is they take those old symbols and melt them down and make other material out of them so they're not wasting that metal. So you can learn more about that at dreamsymbols.com. Also, you've heard me mention a bunch of different books on this podcast, and the great thing is that you can get a lot of these titles, over 250,000 titles at Audible.com. So Audible.com takes books and converts them into audio so you can listen to them much like you're listening to this podcast. I recommend checking out The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss or Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday, and you can get one of those books 100% free by going to Audible.com forward slash drummer d-r-u-m-m-e-r that's audible.com forward slash drummer sign up for a free trial and you can download your own audiobook 100% free audible.com forward slash drummer now let's get back into it with the philly legend david ivory one thing that i like that you mentioned is that you know you got to start with your local studios i think everybody's like well, I want to go and I want you know I want to start recording with the biggest the biggest yeah. producers in the world, and I want to you know cut this record for John Mayer. And it's like, well, if you've never cut a record before, you yeah. should probably start with recording you know exactly John John Mover's record instead of exactly. John Mayer's record. Actually, Jonathan Mover's a really good drummer, so I I didn't mean Jonathan Mover, but um, I know what you mean. But you know you you, you want to definitely
1: start with the small artists, you know, and you want to. Like cause studio playing is completely different than live playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I equate it to a piano and an organ. I mean, they look the same kind of, but that you don't play a pianist is not an organist and an organist is not a pianist. Right. Uh, and that's just all there is to it. Mm-hmm. And no one's going to convince me otherwise. <laughs> sure. A piano person, a pia- pianist can play organ, no doubt. And an organist can play piano. But with, if I want an organ track, I'm going to get an organ player who—that's all they do. They know the sounds. They know how to do the draw bars. They know how to the feel of an organ. They know how to sway it. They right, know right. how to slur into it. Whereas you play know, play left
0: hand. You know, or play sure. play play the with, pedals with, and
1: everything with your foot. Sure. I mean, and that's just a, a different trip than a piano player. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so 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 is it with drumming. Studio drumming and live drumming are two different animals completely. So do you even have a, even the drums to use? Even the drums you use are different. Like I just cut this record with this drummer and he ha, he's a great live drummer. They play great live. Um, but his kit's really big and 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 thuddy because you know he's in big clubs and you know I'm in a I'm in my studio's nice, but it's not a, a vacuous club. So I have to use drum kits that fit the room. Sure. You know, just you, because you just don't have enough air space air density to to be able to move that kind of air to make that kind of kit work you know mm-hmm. what I mean so so even that's a that's a little different and something to be concerned
0: about do you have a stable of guys that that you typically call on now? yes, yes
1: yeah yeah I have about three or four different drummers that I use um, depending again on what style availability, just a whole bunch of different people
0: mm-hmm and and I think that once you get in, you know, I remember talking to Indugu Chancellor and J.R. Robinson when they were saying like, you know, once once you're in once they were in Quincy's stable, they always got the call. Sure. You know, and it's just, you,
1: because you develop a relationship like the drummers I use. I've been working for 20 some years, some of them. Right. So, like, I don't even have to say anything to them. I can just look at them and they know <laughs> seriously, you know, and and the client benefits from that because it's so much faster. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's the difference what people don't get either like you know oh it's 100 an hour it's this much so much money. i can get it for 30 yeah you can get you can get studio time for 20 but you might spend seven hours doing something i'll do in 15 minutes exactly and it'll sound amazing and you're, you're still after seven hours still won't be completely satisfied so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where's the value in that and that's mm-hmm. what you have to understand
0: who know? are some of the guys you use in philly
1: uh chuck trees yeah i is. love truck. Chuck is a, pretty much my main go-to, but I use Butch Serini, mm-hmm. who's um, who's a young kid who's a good programmer and he's a great drummer. And that's the other thing I look for too nowadays. Uh, sometimes I like using drummers that can program really well because then they can program then they can play live drums over top. I do a lot of hybrid stuff, so you know. Um, you know where you're. You're doing grooves and uh, and you're doing live stuff over top. So, you know, typically a, a good programmer that can play drums is really good because they can feel it the best. You know because they have just programmed it. Right. Right. So, um, you know those those two guys are pretty much uh, some guy go- some guys I use a lot. But you know there's others too as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't. You know, not that I didn't think about it, but didn't didn't mention the the. The idea of programming and how important that is, especially in today's music. That oh,
1: yeah. It's it's essential. And, you know, I have a whole setup of uh, all different kinds of ways of tracking and, you know, overdubbing and looping and all that stuff that we kind of use. Um, because, again, I do a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people come here because of the live, live element. You right, know? right.
0: So to shift gears a little bit, can you walk me through a little bit of the, of the songwriting process? Because for the songwriting process as an artist sitting in a room by yourself writing a tune is different than working with a producer, being in the studio and crafting, crafting tunes together. Right. Um, so do you have sort of a systematic way of doing that or do you have a, a, well, a workflow that you can kind of share?
1: Well the, the, the main thing is is no matter who comes in um the main thing is the song. So like I try to get to the bottom of the song and try to get to its fundamental most important part of of the song. And typically you know you'll come to a producer to get their their educated opinion and their their you know you're coming to get their advice or their or their comments on your music because obviously um you know you're looking for that perspective or you wouldn't even be here
0: mm-hmm. so
1: um so i first start working with the arrangement typically what i find the most is that i the one thing i try to do all the time is make sure that the song has new events throughout the song to engage the listener i always tell the artist that you're writing for strangers for people who don't know you and who don't care about you and really aren't even that interested in your music so you have to convince them to take the time out of their life to sit and listen to one of your songs or take the time to listen to it and hear the lyric and all that stuff so that's a that's to me is a pretty tall order you know Mm -hmm. so um and i'm not saying everything has to be a hit single but no matter what you want it to resonate with with the listener i mean no matter i would think otherwise you don't need anything if you don't you know so so if you know if you're looking for people to come to a venue to be at your show if you're looking for for people to buy your t-shirts now you're in the music business so if you're in the music business there's certain things that have to take place and that number one is creating a song that is streamline is will is effective engages the listener and all those points so that's step one get that arrangement really tight step two is to make sure you have all the elements to a song you'd be surprised how many people come with a song that's just got a verse and a chorus essentially right no bridge no pre-hook it might need a lot of different things um so you know we try to make sure that that's all together um you know i always say like when you re- when you arrange a song if the first verse and the second verse are identical and i've already heard the first verse i'm not really sure why i need to listen to the second verse <laughs> So, you know, I mean, I know I'm harsh, but...
0: No, uh, I agree. With I'm I'm with you. That's why I was uh, laughing.
1: You know, it's like the truth. It's like if you're going to do this cookie-cutter kind of straight-up arrangement, I mean, sure, you need a verse, you need a course, you need a verse and a course. but how do you get into that second verse? What do you do different in the second verse that you did to the first verse? Do you do the first verse broken down and then add things in the second verse? Like, what do you do to keep the listener engaged, to keep the oral excitement going on besides just the lyric and the singing? So... Mm-hmm. Those are the elements that we try to look at and work on. And, 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 then, and, and then also the bottom line, too, every single word has to mean something. Like, you just, the fire and desire stuff and all that stuff's got to go. You know, you got to, like, really mean some words that are thoughtful and that, are, that have meaning to you. Um, you know, the songwriter has to have a very honest approach in their writing, so it really emotes feeling from what they're thinking. Not third person, not, you know, sometime I was, you know, it's like really the the most effective songs come from the heart. And Mm -hmm. those words have to really mean something.
0: Hmm. So what what about drummers who don't play a different instrument? Because I get this question a lot too, like, Nick, how did you write your record? Because you're a drummer and you don't play any other (laughs) instrument. And my suggestion is to learn how to play a different instrument.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, anybody should learn as much as they can about any instrument. I mean, you know, you don't have to be a multi-instrumentalist, but you should. I mean, why wouldn't you want to pick up a guitar? Why wouldn't you want to hit a piano? You know what I mean? Play Mm a synth. So yeah, I think it's really good to do that or that or partner, partnering with someone. Yeah. You know, like, like that's mm-hmm. the key to success. I mean, you always have a lot of that happening. And so, and then, you know, especially a drummer, songwriter are great because then you have almost everything covered. You got your programming, your backbeat, your all that stuff. And then you have, you know. So, um I, I've, you know. J- Uh, I think it's you know I think you have to I think it's good to know other instruments and it's good to know many things I mean because you know especially nowadays because you know everything's on a computer so you can play a keyboard pretty easy if you were a drummer yeah it's not like it used to be so
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. agreed so if people want to learn more about you and they want to work with you and they want to have you uh, work on their record what's the best way to get in touch with you
1: oh just email uh, on my website uh, ivoryproductions.com in fact Actually, Monday, we're launching a brand-new website that's going to be – I've been working on it for five months with a designer. And oh, great. It's, it's going to be awesome. And um, not only will it have all the gear that we have, but sound clips from that gear. I have an extensive array of old vintage guitar amps and stuff like that. And so, um, like, you know, I don't even play drums. and I can't even keep a beat to save my life. <laughs> I have two kits and nine snares. You know nice. what I mean? And I can't even play, but I need the drums because I, you know, I want these sounds that I have, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, if you ever need anybody, let me know. uh, I definitely will. I'll get uh, you down here. No doubt. Yeah, I'll definitely come down and I would love to work with you. Um, So last question, what, what are some projects that you have going on right now that, that you would like to, that, that you would like to let people know Uh, about?
1: Well, I just did music for a movie called Camden Love Hate which is a movie that these two Israeli filmmakers uh, basically gave cameras to Camden High School seniors, Mm -hmm. and they filmed kind of their environment. It's not a feel-gooder. It's definitely a very incredible uh, perspective of how our inner city – life is. And, um, I was very proud and fortunate to get to do a lot of the music. And then I music supervised the rest of it by getting commissioning some other people to get involved in it. And, um, it's pretty wild. Uh, these six, these six students film, you know, their homes and what they're doing. Uh, one dies, one gets shot five times. I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty incredible. Uh, but it has some really interesting, great moments to it. And you see some of them really getting, you know, um, really doing well and getting through it. I mean, it's pretty intense, but, and it's kind of coincidental with all the stuff that's happening in America right now. So, um, it, it, it shows that sometimes you just can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps that you are put in a situation and it's difficult to get out and it's not as easy as some people may think. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm pretty proud of that, and we did a lot of great – and like, again, we used some old uh, – since it was like a Camden thing, and we tried to use some like kind of dirtier beats and not make it so pristine and all that. So we, mm-hmm. I, I hope I captured some of the mood of the film.
0: Awesome. And I'll put the show notes – I'll put the link to that in the show notes so people can okay, check great.
1: It out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it's doing the film festival circuit now, so it's not oh, really cool. – Released yet because you can't release it and put it in film festivals. Mm, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we got to wait for that cycle to go through, and then uh, we're gonna do some some film you know releases with it. Awesome. But yeah, so um, so that and then uh, you know a lot of good bands. I just did this band Stolen Roads who have a they've been they're touring with Robert Randolph and Leonard and Skinner and uh, all these great bands and they're playing Sturgis and all that stuff. So I just great. finished their record. It's called. Um, it's. Uh, Name of the album. You can't get it online yet. It's just been released and we're going to wait until, uh, they're selling it at their shows, but we're going to wait till we release it until September. But it's called, um, Bend with the Wind and it's Stolen Roads. And that's a really great record right now. I'm pretty proud of, um, you know, and a whole bunch of other singles I'm doing, um, uh, a band that I worked with Silver Tongue just got signed to uh, pavement records on Sony. I did their single. Um, so, um, a whole bunch of bands doing some good stuff.
0: That's awesome. So I, I, I lied. I have one more question because I think the audience sure. would kill me if I didn't ask you. So it was a long time ago, but working with, with quest love, how was it? And, and how was he as a, as a drummer in the studio?
1: Oh, it's great. I, I see him from time to time. Uh, I still see him from time to time. And, uh, uh, it was great. Uh, and the beauty of it was, was they, we shared an attorney. So that's how I kind of met them
0: uh, okay. and
1: and they were a live hip hop band. And at the time I was doing a lot of, I was doing live music. So it was a kind of a good fit because, um, so, uh, when they came in, you know, I finished up organics and, mm-hmm. and, and, and then, we kind of started our, then they got their deal for real, for real. And then we started with, you know, the Do You Want More? And then went all the way through. And, um, you know. Which uh,
0: Do You Want More just got, it was just certified platinum, right? Yep. How yep. how does that happen? How does that take so, like, as far as I'm concerned, that's one of the greatest hip-hop records ever. Yes. And I don't understand how that, after, what year did that come out? 93?
1: Mm ninety four yeah ninety four i don't know ninety three yeah. ninety
0: four
1: you're right um well the well first of all platinum's a lot first of all no one's selling records
0: um, <laughs> right to
1: right be honest with that and when they that was their first real big record, and it was always floating around four hundred thousand sales forever mm-hmm. um and then when they got to the Fallon thing um uh then it started building. And then it went. Then it went. Then it went gold. And then now it's building a building. And now it's finally sold a million copies. So, so that's that's how that works. It just you know it just takes time um, right. because they kind of hit that cycle too, where it was starting to change. Then even um, like in the beginning of two thousand, um, uh, hip hop was still doing a lot of mixtape stuff. Right. a lot of a lot of giveaways, it wasn't really as big of a thing as it is now, you know what I mean? So, um, and they weren't as popular, I remember when we were nominated for the Grammy, I mean, it was us, Eminem, and Busta Rhymes, um, we were even amazed we were there, because, you know, no one knew who the Roots were, and yeah. everybody knew who Eminem was and Busta Rhymes, but um, we still got nominated, because, you know, it was just some good work, but, you know, it just takes time. The music business is kind of funny. Mm-hmm. But going back to Amir or Questlove, um, you know, uh, we just had a very good, interesting, great relationship. And, and you know, that kit is my kit that we use for all those records. And all those drums are my drums. So, like, we were, he was always into, you know, the the, the sounds that I could get. And he, you know, we both worked together on getting those sounds. We did some crazy stuff. I remember one one time on one of the records, um, we put a snare drum on its side, <laughs> behind him, and I mic'd it. So every time he hit his snare, that snare would rattle, because it was sideways. Huh. You know what I mean? And then I would mic that and gate that, so that would only come on... When, it, when he hit this regular snare, because it was behind him, so it would still feel the vibration of the snare, right. and you would just get this crazy little rattle to it. Nice. And So we, used, we did a whole bunch of weird things like that, and I had a small room at, at Sigma. I had a very small cutting room. Is that where
0: that was recorded at Sigma?
1: Yep, at, okay. at my room there. and uh, Essentially, Sigma just gave me this space, and I had to equip it and do all that myself. So I put all my gear in there, and um because of the tightness of the room that's what helped create that whole neo soul thing you know because it was just that tight drum sound Mm -hmm. um and then um and, and of course the drum kit it's a premier kit and we used that and then we used uh we used that eight inch maple premier snare 1985 maple premier snare and but but instead of using it like the rock way we tightened the head and tightened that drum so tight we almost, we bent the heads, we bent the rims actually. Wow. That's how we got that sound because I didn't like the piccolo sound because it's just too annoying and it's just way too bright and it's odd. But I liked the attack of the, of the piccolo, but I just didn't like the sound of it. So by using an eight inch maple, like a basic heavy metal rock snare drum, but tightening it to the point of where it can't be tightened anymore, mm-hmm. then that was that's how we got that nice pop. So that was an interesting.
0: Little song. Wasn't part of was part of that record or a song from that record or something recorded at the Troc? I did a live. Yes, I did a live. We
1: did a whole live. I'm
0: a, I'm a Roots fan. If you can't tell,
1: <laughs> I can tell. I'm surprised we even know that. Uh, Dave Hewitt. You know the guy with the truck the he's yeah, got beautiful yeah. he's got actually it's a Neve console with 224 track machines in there. So we pulled it up next to the truck and yeah we we recorded an entire set and we they took one of the songs off of that. Yeah. I got you.
0: Okay. Yeah, I just I think just from growing up uh listening to the roots and then, you know, being from Philly and playing all those venues and all that, right? like being in that scene for years is yeah. just, I think I just uh sort of picked up some things. Yeah. On like the, the middle
1: East restaurant, remember the middle East club on chestnut street. Yep. We yeah. yeah. Shows there. It was, that were great. I, there's,
0: there's actually across the street from the truck. There's a, uh, there's a Vietnamese place that has probably some of the best Vietnamese food I've ever had in my life. So mm-hmm. if anybody's, if anybody's there in, uh, in Chinatown. So, um, well david this has been this has been really great and fun and thank you for all the the history of uh of, of dome and all that and and all your all your wisdom and for taking the time to chat I really appreciate it
1: oh it's my pleasure man it's it's great it's all good and uh, look forward to having you down here sometime
0: yeah I would love to uh next time I'm in the I'm in the Philly area I'll let Just you know and,
1: yeah give me some advanced warning I'll set something up
0: that'd be that'd be fantastic and then for everyone listening go to ivoryproductions.com and especially the new site's coming out uh, next, week. So, yep, next so, week. so you'll have a new site and everything. So again, David, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. My pleasure, man. Talk All right. to you soon. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. So there you have it, the one and only David Ivory. And to learn more about him, you can go to IvoryProductions.com. He actually is just launching a new website, uh, so you can check that out. Also, for all the notes and everything that I talked about in the podcast, go to DrummersResource.com forward slash session 193 and please 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 i'm begging you i am i am guilting you into it to go to drummersresource.com forward slash vote v-o-t-e and vote for drummers resource for the best general interest website on the 2016 drummy awards presented by drum magazine i would really really appreciate it last year drummers resource was runner up this year drummers resource for the win drummersresource.com forward slash vote. I would appreciate it until the next podcast. Keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I really, really appreciate it. I hope you have a fantastic weekend. I'll talk to you soon. Peace.